This is thatsinthebible.com. That's in the Bible, episode number 83, God or Goo, part 3. On purpose or by accident? Hearts with fear, freedoms we all hold dear. Now is that stay? Humbling your hearts to God, saves from the chastening rod. Seek the way pilgrims trod, Christians away. Jesus is. Hello, and welcome back to That's in the Bible. My name is Eric. Glad you could join us. That's in the Bible, a program all about God and the Bible. And we believe the Bible from cover to cover. And as I know some people have said, including the cover and everything else that's in it. Um, but you're going to find that today we're taking a look at evolution. You know, one of the things that folks have questions about is, well, how do you line up evolution in the Bible? How, how does that make sense? You know, can, it, can they line up? We're going to take a look at that today in part three, as we've done in parts one and two in Dr. Joel Brown, a geneticist uh, with a degree from Cornell University, PhD, will be joining us today to to bring that study. But we've also got a full house. We've got uh, all of our regulars here, Pastor Strobel, Pastor Matt, Pastor Steve, and so they're all joining us as well. So let's check in with Pastor Steve since we missed him last time. And Steve, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, good to be back. It seems like it's been a long time since I've been on the air with you guys and uh, missed the last couple of uh, podcasts as far as participation, but I have listened to them and found them very fascinating. So it's good to be with you guys again. I'm glad you could join us. Now, there was a rumor, I don't know if this is true or not, you'll have to fill me in, that somebody had said you had gotten on Noah's Ark and that's why you weren't there. I was one of the original passengers. Didn't you know that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) It makes sense, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we, uh, Lori and I uh, took a trip down to uh, Kentucky. Had a lot of uh, stops in that tour. Uh, Went through uh, Ohio and and, uh, Kentucky, then through Indiana, and then to Illinois, and then back home. So it was a big whirlwind trip. But uh, we did get on the ark, and uh, that was amazing. Uh, you know, everything that I had heard from others that had been there uh, was, you know, I couldn't couldn't express it any better than what they had. It's just absolutely huge. And and for what the question that comes about, you know, how could God fit all the animals in the ark? They don't know how big that thing is. And uh, you know, sometimes I like to think that that uh, you know. God could have fit all the animals, all the species on there instead of all the kind, but uh, it was amazing. Some of the things that were there that uh, kind of gave you a, oh, a perspective of what could have happened instead of knowing exactly what took place as far as how they fed the animals, how they got rid of waste, how they got fresh air, how they did all those things. And if some people can think of those things now, uh, we understand the scriptures that God can impart wisdom to be able to accomplish the uh, the tasks that would be that would confront them for the different issues that they had, so have no trouble believing you know that God was able to do that and that Noah was able to do what he did with the help of his son. So absolutely amazing. Just standing underneath it was just awe awe striking. It was just yeah. it was really cool. So hmm. it was a real blessing to be there. And you're right. It's amazing when you 
you know, you read about it in the Bible and you've had, you know, you have had for years, but when you actually stand there and take a look at the scale, it's like, wow, it's, it's really incredible. Well, the one thing that obviously they can't show, and it, and it would probably minimize the size somewhat, you don't see it sitting in water. So you actually mm. see the keel on the That's ground true. and so forth. Good and, point. And so it, it looks really tall, but obviously there's, there would be the displacement for the water and so forth. And But nonetheless, it is still, I mean, when you walk inside of it and uh, see all the room that they could have, and and obviously all the different arguments that are there, you know, people automatically think that they brought adults on the, on the ship. That doesn't necessarily have to be adults. They could have been juveniles and a lot of different things that that uh, were brought uh, uh, across in the exhibits and so forth. And then the other thing was how that they tied um, salvation into it. Uh, it. I don't want to take too long here, but I thought it was really interesting. At first, I thought it was hokey. Then I thought it was interesting when I went from the second level to the third because they had a video that they showed in the bow of the ship, and they did an interview of Noah with three people that were doing the interview, and then they repeated that only in modern times, showing how that they mocked him in the early days, and then they mock it now for creating this ark out there and, and reinforce the, the verse that says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So, hmm. uh, And they weaved in uh, salvation into it, and it was really, really very cool. I, I really enjoyed it. So if you haven't been, it's well worth the trip to take yes, a look. Yes, it is. Yeah. Now, did it remind you of your Navy days? Uh, except for the rocking and rolling, the <laughs> sights and the sounds of it. They have speakers in there that give you the thunder and the lightning, you know, the thunderclaps and, and the waves and the water, the rain coming down and all that kind of stuff, which makes it kind of cool. But, uh, you know, other than that, it was, I mean, you, you've been inside of a big ship like that, which I have. Uh, it looks the same from the inside. Hmm. The, the, the wood was just, I mean, the timbers that they used for their angular supports from the bottom to the top was unbelievable. The beams going across the, the, the width of the ship was <laughs> just incredible that they could find timbers like that that would be able to support that kind of structure. And it was just, just all of it was just awe-striking. Amazing. Yep. Well, cool. Glad you could uh, fill us in, and I'm glad you had a good time. And, and really, if you haven't been there before, it's a, it's a great visit. Amen. All right. Matt, you weren't with us last time either. What's happening there in Point Hope, Alaska? Well, not much. We're getting a heat wave. We've uh, got up into the high 50s, low 60s, and uh, <laughs> we've got all our windows open and just sweating like crazy, so... It's been uh, it's been nice to be able to get outside and enjoy it, except for all the uh, I mean, we have swarms of flies. And if you know anything about Alaska, you get a lot of um, uh, bugs that just want to eat you like crazy. Mosquitoes are just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you can have just your whole back full of mosquitoes. And they bite through. I mean, you put a coat on, they'll bite right through that coat. So <laughs> so dealing with a little bit of that. And uh, just having me just spraying, you know, bug spray all over yourself, probably getting cancer. <laughs> but uh, but but doing all that, and uh, we just had the Fourth of July parade, uh, which every year we decorate the van, the church van, and get a bunch of kids, and uh, we decorate the church van. And so we have in the village, we've got two 
um, fire trucks and we have one ambulance that was, that's always in the parade and uh, a couple of police cars and, and then whoever wants to get into the parade can do it. And so us, of course, as a church here, we take advantage of that and we just, uh, pack the kids in our van that want to go. And uh, the night before we get it all, you know, American flags, everything all over the van. And we get gospel tracks and put them in bags with um, with candies and things like that and throw them out the window as we're going down the roads. So uh, throughout the village. So we were able to get a couple hundred gospel tracks out. And uh, so that was a blessing. So we had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, yeah. And the, other, the only other thing is, I can't remember if I mentioned it or not last time, but uh, my wife and I, Jennifer and I, are expecting another baby. So we're really excited about that. And uh, so our baby is due December 28th. So we're not sure if it's a boy or girl yet. So um, I think my wife is hoping for a girl and a calmer one because our boy <laughs> is just uh, our boy is awesome, but he's just nonstop. So so we're really looking forward to it. So you must, the Lord's been so good to us. It's getting that from the bear side, I'm sure. It's not from my side. No, it's the bear side <laughs> of the family. Oh no! Come on, guys! Come on! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, man. And Pastor Strobel was here last time. Pastor Strobel, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Listening to Matt talk about Alaska in the summertime, we had some folks from our church that did uh, work up there, um, mission work pastorate in Alaska in one of the villages in Kotzebue, Brother Dan Snyder. And I got I was up there over the 4th of July um, several years back. When you mentioned the mosquitoes, it reminded me of a uh, magnetic sticker i believe it was he that gave me but it was of the of a mosquito with the statement on it that it was the alaskan state bird yeah (laughs) (laughs) another highlight of the fourth of july festivities and you can tell me if they did that there matt was uh they would take the snowmobiles they call them snow machines but they take the snowmobiles and hydroplane them across the water they do that there oh yeah oh yeah they're water skipping yeah yeah that's amazing to watch and then uh, we we saw some make it across, and we saw one uh, that did not make it across. <laughs> <laughs> they have like um, plastic jugs with ropes uh, on them, so you can find them and pull them out after that happens. Wow. And then uh, let me just mention, since our last podcast, that I too have been to Noah's Ark. Um, we took our son down to Florida, where he's going to be uh, going to, I believe, a college. If I didn't remember correctly, that Joel went to. Did you say you went to University of West Florida? Yes, I did. Yep. Man, he, he did a couple of years up here and um, uh, in the community college, graduated, and now he's Lord willing going to finish up there where he has, uh, we have a couple of our other sons. He'll be rooming with one of them and um, going to school, Lord willing. So on the way down, we stopped at uh, the Ark, and uh, pretty amazing. I was among, uh, the most thing that struck me the most, as it's already been mentioned, was just the sheer uh, size of it, the magnitude, and just to stand there and and look at it from the outside, I think I enjoyed as much as uh, anything. Mm-hmm. The man that led me to the Lord, Brother Mike Todd, who also does evangelism work in the United States, uh, he one time taught a lesson at our church about Noah's Ark, and he brought up something interesting as he was going about the, talking about the size of it and the dimensions and how much that it would hold, as as we're able to see in the full-scale model. And um he he made a statement went something like this or asked a question went something like this. You know, people talk about how do they get all the animals in it? And when he talked about the sheer volume of space, he said he, his question was, well, really the question is, what, 
why did they have all the extra room? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, then exactly. I, and then I think he posited this, this or somehow this thought came, um, you know, it would could have potentially been for people had they decided they wanted to get on the ark. Amen. It's like Amen. the room was the room was there, but um, nobody wanted to get on, but no one in his it. family. Amen. Amen. That's good. Okay, that brings us to Dr. Joel Brown. Now, I know, Dr. Joel, you've had some rain recently where you're at, and you probably were looking for an ark, but uh, <laughs> has, it, has it calmed down? It, it has calmed down a lot. Last last time we spoke, it was the church was almost a complete island. There was just a little bit of road access, and now the the Mississippi River is in our backfield instead of our parking lot. <laughs> All right, it's going back to where it belongs. Better. Yes, yeah. So, which is a good thing because this is a big week for us at the church. We have um, vacation Bible school. This is the first time um, we've only lived here for less than a year, about 10 months. Um, so this is the first time to participate in vacation Bible school with this church. We used to do it up there at Bible Baptist Fellowship every year. We call it character for kids. Uh, this is, this is, different in a lot of ways because of the urban environment mm-hmm. so we're praying for a lot of kids uh we've we've signed up about 200 kids nice. and out of that I, apparently you know they expect about half of that to actually come mm-hmm. but if we had half of that that would be uh, we'd have our hands full so <laughs> man so where exactly are you at again well, we are we are in St. Louis County. The church is in St. Louis County. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on the west side of the Mississippi River. Uh, we live in the St. Louis city. All right, and so you and you moved from the church that um, I met you at, which is uh, in Alpine, New York. It's in the by the Finger Lakes, Ithaca. Yes, yeah, yeah. So. Well, glad you could join us again, and we're looking forward to God or Goo Part 3. And um, unless anyone has anything else to add, I think we'll go ahead and get started. And I'll take that as a yes, go ahead and get started. (laughs) There you go. So are you all set, Joel? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Okay, so this is part three and part last of the God or Goo series that we've been doing. Uh, this is one I've been looking forward to. It's one of my favorites. I, I really enjoy all the topics that we discuss over this, but um, today's is interesting, It's and you'll, you'll see when we get there. Let's open up with a word of prayer, though, as we delve into this. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to... <clears throat> I personally thank you for this opportunity to be able to participate in this this podcast has really been a blessing to uh, learn from these other gentlemen as they've presented material from the Bible over the many months past. And we just pray that this would be useful for believers, that this would be an encouragement to Christians and, and a, a challenge to everybody, Christian and non-Christian, believer, non-believer, to really think about what they believe, because we all do believe something. So, Lord, I pray that you would use that um, 
use what's said tonight and use your word to um, convict hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so part three. Now, I'd like to start off with a field trip. We're going to take a little field trip, and we're going to actually have to use our time machine. So if you climb in the time machine, we're going to go back over 100 years to New York City. The year is 1906. 1906, New York City. And on our little field trip here, we're going to go to the zoo in New York City. This is the Bronx Zoo. So we enter the zoo, and we start walking around the zoo. We come to the monkey house. Uh, we go inside the monkey house, and what do you expect to see? Well, sure enough, we see some orangutans, some gorillas, some chimpanzees. And then you look in the next cage, and you see a human being. So this is an actual occurrence that occurred in 1906 in the Bronx Zoo of New York. A human being was placed in the zoo. This uh, And this was the sign, the sign that was posted at this cage. It said, quote, the African pygmy Odabanga, age 23 years, height 4 feet 11 inches, weight 103 pounds, brought from the Kasai River Congo Free State, South Central Africa, by Dr. Samuel P. Werner, exhibited each afternoon during September. So I want you to stop and ask yourself, <clears throat> how does something like this happen to the point where a human being is placed in a zoo along with animals? So that's really what we're talking about in this third and final part is, uh, <clears throat> so if What's what's if evolution if you believe in evolution versus if you believe in the Bible what what's the logical endpoint the logical conclusion of that and we're going to see that these two worldviews have vastly different implications for our behavior today in the present <clears throat> uh, first let me just quickly review a bit from just to get us all up to speed these last three uh, podcasts or this series has been covering the topic of um, where did I come from? That big question. And this is not a question of science. This is a question of worldview, or if you will, a question of beliefs. What do you believe? The question of <clears throat> origins and how did life begin, that's outside of the realm of testable, repeatable science. Uh, so this is a faith-based question. And we've broken it up into three parts. The first part was called God or Goo, where we looked really just an introductory, uh, introductory part about um, in the beginning goo, that's the evolutionary worldview, versus in the beginning God, which is the biblical worldview. The last uh, podcast that we did was part two, created or evolved. And this was the, the lengthy one. Uh, we crammed a lot in there because in this podcast, we took a look at the science and saw how um, the science, evolution stood up to the science and saw how it did not. Uh, we pointed out three pillars of evolution. There's the cosmic evolution, the uh, the origin of the universe, organic evolution, the origin of life, Darwinian evolution, the origin of you, like going from the goo to you. And we just pointed out how there are big problems, scientifically speaking, 
with each of these three pillars of the evolutionary worldview. And I'm not going to go into the detail. You can go back and listen to that whole lengthy uh, podcast. But the short answer is, that, you know, it's real important for us to have this take home concept in the back of our mind for when this topic comes up. The short answer is what's the big problem? The big problem with all of these is the order and the information that we see in the world around us. You could call it the design that we see in the world around us. And we looked at the the fine-tuning of the universe. We also looked at DNA. DNA is is my research field, uh, genetics, and DNA is incredibly complex. It's packed with lots of information. So where did all this information come from? For us, no, no problem. We believe in the beginning God created all this information. We believe in the beginning God fine-tuned the universe. But if you take God out of the equation, then you have massive scientific problems with your worldview. Uh, okay, so I thought, though, before going into this third and final part, as I've been going through this and, and we've been talking about these different topics, some some questions have come up. At least I think, you know, if you were a an evolutionist out there, you might have come up with some of these questions and I maybe didn't address them as I was going. I certainly couldn't stop to address every topic. And so I thought before the final um, part three, we should raise some of these questions and quickly, quickly address them. For instance, and I'm actually going to call on the other guys here. I gave them a little heads up that I was going to call on them. Um, I'm going to just pose some of these questions. They aren't really scientific questions, but they're more about faith and belief and and. Um, and we're just going to take a moment and have a couple people chime in on them and see what they have to say. So, uh, for instance, here's the first question. Speaking from a from the evolutionary perspective, uh, so what if I believe everything came from nothing? Don't Christians believe that everything came from nothing? And this this is a a good point. Um, I was heavily critical last week or last time about the how the Big Bang says everything literally came from nothing, and that's impossible. But then on the other hand, when we say God created, I do say and claim that God created from nothing. So well, what's the difference here? Uh, any of you fellows want to chime in on that? Well, I could mention this, that that as the question was was posed you know don't christians believe that everything came from nothing just to maybe even backstep a little bit um and reiterate what you've said we don't believe it, it came from nothing we believe it came from god who created it in his creation hebrews tells us that through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of god so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear so he did make things from things that, that we can't see your follow-up um, question I think to that had to do with, well, you know, where did God come from? Like, where, yeah, like we absolutely. would say, where does, you know, if evolution came from a big bang, from gases mixing together or however you want to say it, we say, well, where did that stuff come from? And that's a legitimate question. And briefly about where God came from, he's been here. He's always been here. He's eternal. There's no beginning, no end. And if that sounds preposterous, I'm just going to highlight something I mentioned last time. Um, one of the iconic minds of science that the world looks up to and bows down to is the mind of Stephen Hawking. And Hawking, prior to his 
physical degeneration when he was still able to speak with his own voice, uh, he came to the conclusion and told uh, a bunch of people that in regards to the beginning of the universe and, and answering those questions from an evolutionary standpoint, he thought that the universe had always been here. He, he said that the universe was here forever. It was eternal. It was his conclusion. So he understood that something could have been here forever. He just got it wrong. It wasn't the universe that had been here forever. It was the God that created the universe that had been here forever. Yeah, amen. I mean, that is certainly sums up what uh, how the Bible presents God to us. Um, and similar to that now, here's another objection that kind of goes along with that. Uh, one might say, fine, all right, so I do accept parts of evolution by faith. This was one of my main points in last the last uh, part two, was that I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution. The things that they're asking me to believe in require an immense amount of faith. So someone could say, all right, fine, I do accept parts of evolution by faith. You also accept the creation account by faith. <clears throat> Is that true? Uh, now, I maybe should answer partly my own question here. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree, <laughs> for starters, you know. I absolutely do accept the creation account by faith in the sense that, yeah, I believe, I take God's word for it. This is how God said it happened, and I believe that that's how it happened. We do look around at the evidence that screams that there was a designer. Um, personally, I don't believe that we we see, I don't think you can scientifically prove or demonstrate that it happened the way God described it in Genesis 1. Those are some specific details that I'm taking by faith from the author of the creation himself. That's how I look at it. Any comments there, guys? Well, the only thing that I would say is that God expects us to accept it by faith. He doesn't expect us to believe such a thing as evolution that just didn't happen, or, you know, just happened out of nothing without anything to interject uh, that nothing there, if, if you understand what I mean. In other words, they're the exponent that is different in the kind of faith that we have from the faith that they have is that we have God, and God expects us to do it by faith or, or to believe by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So God expects us to accept him by faith, and then consequently all that he did in creating is accepted by faith as well. If you have the evolutionist point of view and they believe uh, they, they have to believe it by faith, they have nothing to base that faith on except just that it just happened. And we have something substantial that we can base our faith upon, and that's God. Amen. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that Hebrews 11.6. I think that's a uh, an important verse for Christians and non-Christians alike. You know, um, and if, so. I, if I could too, Joel, I'd just like to say, uh, you know, I dealt with a gentleman that had just graduated x-ray school, and I was working as an x-ray tech, and uh, he came through and was working there at my job for a couple of years, and he was asking me about this. He was an evolutionist, and he was saying, well, don't you just believe by faith also, you know, and it's just, you, you just believe, you know, by blind faith. And so I, around that same area, Hebrews chapter 11, 
Uh, but in verse one, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So I said, you know, we don't, we don't believe it by blind faith. We have got the evidence and there's substance to it. And mm-hmm. the bottom line is we could look all over the place, which is true. We could see that the creation had a creator. But at the same time, I think the greatest evidence of God and, and that he created everything is the Bible. And uh, yeah. so I told him, I said, let me show you some prophecy hundreds of years. It was written hundreds of years ago. And it's come true 100% of the time. Um, that proves right there that it had to be God that wrote it. And, and of course, he says that he created everything, so it has to be. So, um, you know, and after that, he actually really started to listen that much more when I started to show him scripture about uh, there's no doubt it had to be God. Yeah, no, good, good point to raise there. Um, if I could let just, me throw this, if I could sorry, just jump ahead, in or, just for a minute, Joel. I mean, if, if you've listened to, you know, Pastor uh, Strobel, Pastor Steve, and, and uh, Pastor Matt, all three of them, you'll notice that they're referring to the Bible. And I think, you know, it's not opinion that we're saying that God created everything. The Bible itself, as you pointed out before in one of the earlier podcasts, said, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's written down. It's written down in a, an infallible book that has never been proven wrong. And and as Matt was saying, has all these prophecies that have come true and all these archaeological um, facts that have never been uh disproven. So it's more than just opinion about, well, I believe my faith tells me, you know, to me, it's even more than that. It's faith, but I've also got an infallible authority in the Bible of the King James. Um, And, you know, it says in Psalm 100 verse three, know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he, he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So, you know, over and over as I read the Bible, as we read the Bible, we are constantly reminded and, and reaffirmed that, you know, God's in control. He put everything in motion. The Bible clearly states it. Uh, you know, it doesn't really uh, give you a lot of room for uh, other theories on it. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel like we have really rock-solid evidence for God that uh, gives us an infallible Bible that's never been disproven, so... Oh, so, Eric, you said something there that really brings us to this last question. You said that it doesn't leave a lot of room for any other explanation, the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So this, this last objection that I think this is the most common one that you'll come across is this idea, you know, why can't we just mix both worldviews? So I've been dealing with this in a very uh, – there's – two options. There's the evolutionary worldview, there's the biblical worldview, and they're polar opposites. Um, so I believe this is actually, this is the case. But a lot of people would say, hey, why can't we just mix both worldviews? Uh, what do you what do you guys think about that? And how, how would you respond to that? Well, I would say because the declarations that the scriptures make regarding the creation view um, go against what he what the uh, mixture view would be. Whether you're talking about um, a theistic evolution, like uh, basically that's what I think you're saying here. So sure. if God created the earth in um, six days and then rested on the seventh, they were days. And to float them out to try to make them longer than a day, like an like an age, is just to read something into the scriptures that isn't there. Evening and morning were the first day, and the second and the third, etc. Yeah. Um, so. If I- if if I could add something to that that may may 
uh, it, it's not going to be with theistic evolution, but contrary to it. I think in the last podcast, you did show that there is a mixture of it. Uh, the uh, I think you, you might have referred it in different terms, but macroevolution and microevolution, where things in small little segments begin to change over time, and that is a form, as uh, if I remember correctly, a form of evolution as you described it. Sure. So in some sense, there is a combination of the two. God just makes a dis- distinction between macro and micro, of which the scientific uh, world, uh, you excluded, <laughs> uh, does not make that distinction. They try to lump the two together. Well, um, uh, that, that was a very scientific answer for this question, I have to say. <laughs> the uh, and, and I wouldn't have thought to put it like that, but you're right. There is... There is a, a mixture in the sense that we also believe things change. We think we think things are devolving. You know, they're really changing uh, mm-hmm. for the worse. Mm-hmm. And whereas evolution says they are evolving, they're changing for the better. So, uh, yeah, that's a good way to, to put it there. Uh, and I would uh, say too, we've got a uh, great um, study on that too. It's called this theistic evolution biblical episode fifty six. If somebody wants to, because I've I've dealt with a lot of people that you know they're really they're really struggling in their faith in regards to they know they're saved. You know, they believe the Bible, but at the same time they say, well, what about, you know, why couldn't it just be both? You know, why couldn't God uh, just uh, allow evolution to take place too? And, and the the issue with that is like pastor Scholl said, it goes clear against the Bible. And then what people try and do is they say, well, but then Genesis is just allegorical and it's not, you know, God didn't really mean the book of Genesis, especially the beginning, you know, 12 chapters to really be doctrinal and, and, and true. But if you go that route, the problem with that is, is Jesus Christ all throughout the Gospels, he mentions specific names like Adam and Eve. Uh, he mentions um, Cain, Noah, the devil, uh, all these people that were real and they weren't just allegorical. And and that we go over that in episode 56. So. You either believe what God said or uh, and that he created everything for macro. There was no macro evolution or you don't believe God and you believe, uh, you know, this this by faith that it was this uh, macro evolution. All right. And that was episode number what? Uh, episode 56. 56. OK. All right. So there you have it. That, that'd be a good one to um, reference back to if someone has that question out there. Uh, all right. So. Let's land this airplane now. Um, I'm going to this this last. You know, I, I find this topic extremely interesting. But does it really matter? You know, I, is it just a mental exercise that we're going through? Does it really matter uh, what we believe about where we came from? And so I'm going to sort of address that in this last uh, part three on purpose or by accident. So let's suppose for a moment <clears throat> that the evolutionary worldview is true. All right. Let's suppose it's true. Let's suppose that there is no God. Let's suppose that we are nothing more than the unplanned outcome of some goo that sparked to life. Um, let's follow that thinking to its logical conclusion. That's what we're going to do in this part. So don't take my word for it. Somebody else has already followed it to its logical conclusion. Here's a quote from William B. Provine. He's um, He died in 2015, but he was 
a evolutionary biologist, population genetics geneticist at Cornell University. Now, I never met him there. He had retired since since I was there. Ironically, he uh, lived in Horseheads, New York. So that's actually where Eric is based out of right now. Um, and he made this statement, <clears throat> quote, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain I am going to be dead. That's the end for me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life. So this is someone who has followed evolution, the evolutionary worldview, to its logical conclusion. Very few people have the courage to follow the logic that far. But do you remember that quote from the textbook? I think I mentioned it last week. <clears throat> this is a quote from a high school textbook, and it says, You are an animal and share a common heritage with earthworms. So from an evolutionary perspective, you have no more value than an earthworm. And, of course, we're bigger than earthworms. The chemical reactions in our brain are a bit more complicated than in earthworms. But at the end of the day, they are still nothing more than chemical reactions. Any sense of purpose that we do have is nothing more than a survival instinct intended to keep us alive long enough to pass on our genes. Any sense of value we have is nothing more then some neurons firing in order to prevent us from quitting before producing the next generation of complex chemical organisms. Uh, any sense of love that you have for your children is just a pre-programmed chemical response intended to hijack your instinct for self-preservation and instead sacrifice of yourself for the betterment of your offspring. It all boils down to we're just a bunch of chemical reactions. Now, I don't know about you, I'm a little depressed already. Um, here's another quote. This is from <clears throat> a British geneticist. He puts it this way. What happens is that any gene which increases our ability to reproduce ourselves will be favored even if it's tremendously expensive after reproduction has taken place. So that's why children are healthy and old people are unhealthy. What matters is living long enough to pass on your genes. Once you've passed on your genes, you don't matter in the Darwin machine, so you die. All right, so again, this is someone who's followed it to its logical conclusion. Now, to help us understand this mentality, let's go back to the book that started it all, the, um, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. Now, in his book, uh, which we discussed a little bit last week, but he makes this statement. He says, quote, thus from the war of nature... From famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of higher animals, <clears throat> that would be us, directly follows. So think about what he's saying there. He's saying we are the result of the war of nature, of famine and death. These are the heroes of the plot that drive evolution. You know, in the Old Testament, we learn of the Ten commandments that God gave to man. Well, evolution really has one commandment. The ultimate governing principle, the 
one commandment of evolution is survival of the fittest. That's what it all boils down to, survival of the fittest. So what happens when you apply this governing principle to humans and human morality? Well, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to guess. Recent history is filled with examples of people trying this. Uh, and you might be interested to note, I think Matthew mentioned this in our very first uh, podcast on this issue, um, the full title of Origin of Species is actually this. It says, <clears throat> On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. So you, it's, <clears throat> you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see where this a mindset of survival of the fittest, if that is the ultimate governing principle, where is it going to lead us? Here's a quote from Charles Darwin in a later book of his. So the origin of species focused mainly on um, what we would call animal life. He later on uh, wrote books about man and how man evolved. This book is called Descent of Man. And it says, he says, quote, at some future period, not very distant, as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. <clears throat> then it says, the break will then be rendered wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of, as at present, between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla, end quote. So you hear what he's saying here. He's saying, you know, right now there is not a big difference between mankind and animals. And he compares the um, African Negroes and the gorillas. He says, but once we civilized races have exterminated the savage races, there's going to be a bigger difference between man and our ape ancestors. Now, this sounds harsh, and indeed it is. But really, wait, wait, wait. It's just survival of the fittest. In fact, Stephen Jay Gould, he's a paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, he made this statement. Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. He is an evolutionist, and he recognizes this. Um, so now it makes a little more sense. Why? In 1906... You could go to the Bronx Zoo and you could find a human being in one of the cages. <clears throat> this was not the doing of a bunch of uh, <clears throat> racists from the South or something, as is often claimed. This is these were he was placed there by the academics of the day. Here's a quote from The New York Times <clears throat> regarding this Otobanga. He was the Otobanga was the name of the African pygmy who was placed in this cage. Um, New York Times editorial had this to say about it. We do not quite understand all the emotion which others are expressing in the matter. It is absurd to make a moan over the imagined humiliation and degradation Banga is suffering. The pygmies are very low on the human scale. And the suggestion that Banga should be in school instead of a cage ignores the high probability that school would be a place from which he could draw no advantage whatever. The idea that men are all much alike except that they have had or lacked opportunities for getting an education is now far out of date. Uh, so again, these are were some of our social elites of the day who 
um, we're arguing how mankind is not all created equal, but they are the result of evolution, and there would consequently be differences. Now, just to finish the story about Otabanga, it's it's actually a rather sad story. Um, he was kept in this cage for about a month. There eventually some preachers came to his defense. Uh, a couple of preachers. One was this Reverend Gordon, and this other fella. Let's see. He was Robert MacArthur, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Manhattan. Um, but they they got together. They made a petition. Reverend Gordon was an African-American fellow, and he made this petition. He said, quote, our race, we think, is depressed enough without exhibiting one of us with the apes. We think we are worthy of being considered human beings with souls. And we say amen to that. Um, Sadly, Otobanga, while he was eventually released, he was released into um, this Reverend Gordon's care. He ran an orphanage. Um. Otobanga wanted to go back to Africa. World War One broke out. He was not. He was never able to make it back to Africa. And in 1916, Otobanga shot himself. Uh, eventually, or ultimately, ending that uh, story. So, from the biblical perspective, you know, we look at this and we have a completely different view of things. We see, for instance, well. Going back to the very beginning, we believe that God created everything. We believe that God created mankind. In Acts chapter 17, it's told we're told that in verse 24 and 26, it says this, God that made the world and all things therein, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Um, in Galatians chapter 3 verse 18, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. We recognize that when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, it was all of us. When Jesus died for the world, it was for all of us. That's why Matthew's a missionary in the Arctic Circle, and that's why my sister is a missionary in Belize. Um, That's why we have missionaries in the United States. All people need the gospel. Um, Now, Compare this to the evolutionary worldview. Here's a quote from Ernst Haeckel. He's a very colorful, interesting character that was contemporary with Charles Darwin, a little bit later than Charles Darwin. He's long gone now. Um, But he was said to have been the first person to make a religion out of Darwinism. Uh, And this is a quote from Ernst Haeckel. He said, Christianity makes no distinction of race or of color. It seeks to break down all racial barriers. In this respect, the hand of Christianity is against that of nature. For are not the races of mankind the evolutionary harvest which nature has toiled through long ages to produce? May we not say then that Christianity is anti-evolutionary in its aim? Well, there may be some truth to that. Uh, obviously he's looking at this from a different perspective. <clears throat> and But it's just amazing to see someone actually take this to its logical conclusion and make statements like that. Now, Darwin, or this idea eventually evolved, to use that terminology, into this idea called eugenics. So I'm going to unpack that here in just a little bit. But let me give you another quote from Charles Darwin. This is his book, The Descent of Man. So it's regarding mankind. And he makes this statement. 
<clears throat> we civilized men do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of mankind. Excepting in the case of man itself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. That's, again, an amazing statement. But wait a second. It's just survival of the fittest. So you can see where this idea is going to lead. This idea was picked up by Darwin's half-cousin. His name was Francis Galton, and he coined the term eugenics in 1883. Eugenics, this term means, I mean, if you look at the etymology of the word, it means good birth. But really, it's the idea that we can better the human race by controlling who is allowed to produce offspring. Um, I like the way there, there's this logo from the Second International Congress of Eugenics. They had a logo in 1921, and this logo is this large tree growing out of the ground with the word eugenics emblazoned in big, bold letters across the tree. And it has this caption that says, eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution. You see, from an evolutionary worldview, this is only logical. Now, eugenics, this idea of eugenics controlling who's able to produce offspring it sounds very foreign to us today, but it was actually it spread in the United States like wildfire in the early 1900s. Here's a quote from someone which everyone probably recognizes. I'm going to read the quote and see if you can guess who it is. This person said this was, let's see, in 1925. They said hordes of people are born who live yet who have done absolutely nothing to advance the race one iota. Their lives are hopeless repetitions. Such human weeds clog up the path, drain up the energies and resources of this little earth. We must clear the way for a better world. We must cultivate our garden. Again, an amazing statement here. Sounds like it was made by Hitler or something. Actually, this was, um, this was said by Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. She also said this, uh, quote, before eugenics and others who are laboring for racial betterment can succeed, they must first clear the way for birth control. Like the advocates of birth control, the eugenists, for instance, are seeking to assist the race toward the elimination of the unfit. Now, this sounds extreme, and indeed it is. But wait a moment. It's just survival of the fittest. Right. I'm what's so bad about that? I'm speaking hypothetically here, obviously. Um, so it's really interesting to look at this time point in history. Again, this sounds foreign to us that people were actually promoting this openly. These ideas were not coming from the bottom of society, so to speak. They were coming from the upper crust of academic elites. The leaders in in promoting eugenics and promoting sterile, forced sterilization of people, they came from places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They were the top of the um, academic world. And 
time would fail us to read all the racist rhetoric coming out of these institutions during this era. But they all believed it, or I say not all. There was some people who disagreed with it, but um, this was common back then because they believed in evolution in the sense that this was a scientific justification for racism. But it wasn't all about race. They were ultimately arguing for the sterilization of people that they considered intellectually inferior. And you can only imagine how they would define that. Um, so, in fact, in the early 1900s, there were many states in the U.S., approximately 30 states in all, that actually enacted eugenics-based compulsory sterilization, so forced sterilization of people that were considered misfit or imbeciles or um, some intellectual disability. So this was this was here, happening here in the United States in the 1900s, and evolution the was the scientific justification driving it. So you might ask, why did all of this come to a screeching halt? Because you don't hear anything like this now. Well, the answer is simpler. It's simple. It is a one-word answer, and that word is Hitler. So the problem is somebody actually took these ideas and ran with them and applied them at large scale. Um, one of Hitler's close confidants quoted him as saying, quote, I have studied with great interest the laws of several American states concerning the prevention of reprodu reproduction by people whose progeny would in all probability be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock, end quote. Again, straight from Hitler himself, this is from his book, Mein Kampf. He makes this statement, The stronger must dominate and not mate with the weaker, which would signify the sacrifice of its own higher nature. Only the born weakling can look upon this principle as cruel, and if he does so, it is merely because he is of a feebler nature and narrower mind. Now catch this, he says, For if such a law did not direct the process of evolution, then the higher development of organic life would not be conceivable at all. Now, this sounds extreme, and indeed it is. But wait a second. It's just survival of the fittest. Now, unfortunately, Hitler put this into practice on a horrific scale. Um, upwards of six million Jews that he exterminated and not just Jews, there were thousands and thousands of other people groups that he targeted, which he considered inferior. Um, one of a contemporary with Hitler, who was uh, a British fellow, Sir Arthur Keith, he was a scientist, uh, an anthropologist, an anatomist. He made this statement. <clears throat> so again, th he made this statement, I think it was 1933. So this is contemporary with Hitler. The Holocaust hasn't happened yet. He said, the German Führer, that's Hitler, as I have consistently maintained, is an evolutionist. He is consciously sought to make the practice of Germany conform to the theory of evolution. So again, just this guy's stating it like it is. Now, now, wait a second. Are you actually saying that the theory of evolution is responsible for the Holocaust and for all these atrocities? And Well, no, ultimately Hitler is responsible for the Holocaust. We, we get this from the Bible. The Bible says the heart is deceitful of all, above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And this has just been on display uh, incredibly for the last 
hundred years, just the depths to which mankind can can go. Um, so ultimately, Hitler's responsible and his associates are responsible for their own actions. But my point is simply this: if you have a worldview that says loud and clear, and I quote, "There are no gods, no purposes." No goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics. No ultimate meaning to life. If you have a worldview that says this, that's a very dangerous road to go down. And it's also, you know, it's also a very sad road to go down. Um, taking us now back to present day. When I was younger, not that much younger, but when I was younger, I have an older brother who um, he's always he, he's he's always been someone I've looked up to. He's does a lot of things and and he was a debater. He was always debating things and getting into things. By the way, uh, pardon the sirens outside; you probably could hear that. <laughs> um, anyway, so my brother he was a debater and and. He also liked this topic, creation evolution, and so we would get into spats with um, uh, atheists and evolutionists. On in the old days, it was these email groups. Uh, I say old days; this wasn't long ago, but now it's it would be like uh, discussion forums and Facebook is the modern equivalent of this. But back then, um, when this was in high school for me, we were doing this on these email discussion groups. And he asked this series of questions to the evolutionists and atheists that were in this discussion with us. There were ten questions. I don't remember what they all were, but the tenth question was simple. It was this. Do you believe there is an ultimate meaning to life? And one of the atheists on the forum, um, her name was Elisa Fiat, she answered, this was her answer. This was in 2002. She said, Personally, I think life is empty and meaningless. Now, again, I I hear that, and I think that, I'm, that that's a sad state to find yourself in. But unfortunately, when you take the evolutionary worldview lock, stock, and barrel, and you follow it to its logical conclusion, this is the result. This is what happens when you tell people you are an animal, and share a common heritage with earthworms. So I'd like to close by taking us back to the biblical worldview. I'd like to share with you some of the toxic things I learned as a kid growing up in church. Instead of learning that I was an animal and shared a common heritage with earthworms, <clears throat> I learned some different ideas. In fact, uh, I was a pastor's kid, so my mom ended up... Uh, running some of the children's church that I participated in. This is one of the songs that I learned when I was a child in children's church. And just listen to all of the dangerous rhetoric packed into this song. It went something like this. We're more than just accidents without a cause. We're more than just bodies and brains. God made us on purpose. We're part of a plan. He cares and he knows us by name. Now, I'm telling you, that is some dangerous stuff to believe. Isn't it amazing, though, 
the the difference between these two worldviews. You know, I even to this day, I'm a little older now, and I can still sing that song with meaning. We're more than just accidents without a cause. We're more than just bodies and brains. You know, I believe God made me on purpose, that I'm part of his plan, and he knows me by name. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this discussion on creation, evolution, and science as much as I have. Um, I just want you to remember, I want to leave you with this thought that, you know, you don't need advanced technology to understand the Bible. You don't need an expensive education to understand the Bible. You don't need any, you know, fancy credentials to understand the Bible. But you do need a little faith. Uh, God did not give us the Bible so that you could believe in creation. He gave us the Bible so that you could believe in salvation. We're told in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for instance, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? We're told in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you believe that? We're told also in Romans, um, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe that? We're told later on that, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Do you believe that? You know, this is the most important thing. And let me just say, if you've never done that before, if you've never seen your need for Jesus and seen your sin for what it is, uh, then you need to get in on this good news. That's that's what the gospel is. That's good news. And if you have done that, if you have believed these things, then you're a Christian. You've asked Christ to save you. And you may be interested to know that if you turn to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, you will find these words. In the beginning, God created. And it's really just that simple. Psalm 95, 3-6 For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Eric, back to you. Well, thank you, Joel. It's a nice, nice wrap up to uh, the study. And again, folks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to episode number 80, which started it all and then continues on in episode number 82. And then today's is 83. Um, so guys, what, any comments? Well, <laughs> uh, I tell you what, just hearing Joel speak of the end results of what uh, evolutionists, if they come to that final conclusion, if I got the guy's name right, the first one you talked about was was it Provine? Was that the guy's name? Yes, that's right. Provine. Uh, just hearing his quote, it sounded like someone who was absolutely uh, in absolute despair 
and had no answers for the purpose. And, uh, you know, it was like life was a complete waste of time, which seemed to be a, a theme of the other evolutionists that you quoted uh, throughout the podcast. And, and my mind, when I'm hearing this, the first thing that came to my mind was, I, you know, Jesus Christ saying, I came that you might have life mm. and that you might have it more abundantly. Amen. And that sounds so much different than what these people had come to a conclusion to believe. It's interesting to me that how that they portray Christianity as being, at least biblical Christianity, as being so negative, when actually in reality is the one that offers the most hope. Amen. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sad. And, you know, we've probably heard this on many times on many other podcasts, but it's, it's just the fact that people are trying to escape standing before God or the realization that they will stand before God and give an account of their life and what he has said in his word. And they're going to great lengths to try to prove God wrong. Uh, you know, that verse in, Rome, or in Romans chapter 1, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God and so forth and so on. They're trying their best, trying to disprove him so that they don't in their own mind, at least, and convincing others to believe the same, that they are not going to have to stand before a, a holy God that expects them to receive his word by faith. Amen. And again, just to say it again, Christianity, biblical Christianity, offers hope Amen. And, yeah. and offers life, and life more Amen. abundantly. Yeah, I just want to add to that, what you're talking about is, I mean, you look at... We were talking about the Ark Encounter, that you guys were able to go to the Ark Encounter. If you've ever, if you ever uh, look up, you can look up on YouTube, there's a two-hour walkthrough of the Ark. And it doesn't show everything, of course, but it's uh, Ken Ham. And he is a, he's saved, and he's one of the guys behind the Ark Encounter. And um, he walks through the Ark with Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> now, I grew up with Bill Nye, the science guy. And um, and you see, if you if you watch that, you see how how Ken Ham. I've watched the whole two hours. You, you see how Ken Ham is always real, just down to earth. He's you can tell, you know, he's in full control. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't get mad. But you look at Bill Nye, and he's just snobbish, and just looks down, you know, and even you know, stuffs up his nose to, uh, to Ken Ham and to anybody that believes that, you know, that God created everything. And, and that's what I see many times is, is people that are against God, against creation. Uh, the fact that they don't have that happiness, they don't have that joy that you were talking about. And, and I used to watch a lot and, and every once in a while I still do, uh, you've got uh, Kent Hovind. And um, he's done many, many debates and, and seminars and things like that in regards to uh, creationism uh, with, with God creating everything. And um, now, of course, I don't believe in all of his doctrine. Uh, he's kind of gone a little bit south on some doctrines now. But, boy, his stuff on uh, creation, everything is really good. And, and when you when you watch his debates against, um, uh, you know, people, whether they're scientists or whether they're teachers in in or professors or whatever, and he debates them, you don't see any happiness or joy. He's got joy like you wouldn't believe, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and it's a blessing watching those creationists, those Christians debate. They, they're having fun. They're enjoying themselves and everybody else is not having fun. 
everybody else's. There's just no happiness there. So I just thank the Lord for salvation. I thank Man. the Lord that, that we do have the evidence. And, and uh, once you get saved, that's the best evidence of all, too, is, yeah. is you're a new creature in Christ. So, amen. That was a good study. Appreciate it. Amen. 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 I'd like to say uh, thank you, Dr. Brown. It's been refreshing to hear you treat the subject of evolution from a biblical and scientific vantage point, Amen. and yet still come out proclaiming that there is a God and the Bible is true. And because that's, that's where I'm at, and that's where uh, Christians are as well. And uh, I want to make a little reference to the textbook quote, uh, the beginning of one of those textbook quotes you mentioned. It said uh, the person saying that you are an animal. Right. And based on evolution, that is what folks believe. They believe we came from animals and essentially we are akin to the animals. And so when I was a kid, they made this movie and they called it Animal House. Mm-hmm. And it was about a, a college fraternity. And it's basically about college fraternity and, and sorority life. And it portrays the behavior, really, I think, of a bunch of people that have grown up with that mentality. Yeah. Because you have a bunch of college students behaving like heathenistic, hedonistic animals. And that's what they do, just flesh indulgent um, animals. And, and this is what we got. We got a bunch of you know, dog-eat-dog people. And I'll give you one um, passage of Scripture where the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. And I've uh, found this to be very enlightening, his standpoint, um, the, the truth that comes from, from this. And I'll, I'll read it and then just say, say a brief uh, word or two about it. But in Matthew 10, verse 29 through 31, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Amen. And from the standpoint of Jesus Christ, the human being is worth more than the animal. We're not on the same plane. We're not on the same level. We are people with a soul that lives on in eternity for heaven or hell. And and he talked about, he wasn't saying, you know, treat the animals wrongly because he said, you know, your father, he notices when one falls to the ground. But he says in the big picture of things, we're of more value than, than many sparrows because of that very fact. We do have a soul. Um, man did not come from the animals. It's a separate uh, entity altogether. And that's why so Could many I... missionaries and, and pastors and, and Christians have devoted their lives to spreading the gospel and, and uh, you know, seeing the salvation of souls versus, you know, we're not spending all of our time saying the uh, blue snail dauber. <laughs> Even though I don't have anything against the blue snail dauber. <laughs> I have not heard so much as whether there be any blue snail dauber. I might have made one that. One last observation. <laughs> Sure. Can I make one one last observation? Um, you know, I have found over the years listening to evolutionists that they believe that science is superior to the Bible and superior to uh, Christianity and so forth. And and the one thing that I might say to that, because a lot of this, what Joel has shown, is is that science really isn't as superior as they think they are because they are lower well they have to believe these things by faith instead of establishing them and what i mean by that is is this that i found that the bible or that that science catches up to the bible the bible doesn't catch up to science 
I think we did a podcast as the Bible out science science, mm-hmm. showing where they believed uh, certain things like the Earth was flat, and I know that's become a, a <laughs> popular thing now, but but that the world is flat and so forth, and then in Job it says it's a circle. Uh, but many other things that go through the, on that podcast, you want to reference that, you can see many things throughout the Scripture that, that science catches up to the Bible instead of the Bible catching up to science. And, and so the Bible is, I think, more relevant to our society uh, morally and, and spiritually, but also scientifically. And uh, I think, you know, if they had a different perspective on the Bible, they might be able to learn some things. Amen. Yeah, and to add to that, that is so true. Um, it sounds sorry, like there's the sirens again. It sounds like they're looking for you, Joel. Where's that? Where's that? Where's that <laughs> Christian scientist? Take you away, <laughs> The atheists are coming after you, brother. <laughs> we we got the broadcast. We got we triangulated the source. We're closing in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, from an undisclosed location. <laughs> so, but just to to emphasize what he said there, it's so true. For like in the sciences. Um, there is this huge this <clears throat> element of um, superiority that yeah, we we nothing is outside of our knowledge, and it, if we learn more, eventually we'll know everything there is to know. And the Bible stands in complete contrast to that because what the Bible is in essence stating is that God is outside of of your man-made yep. knowledge. Yep. And if you're will if you're not willing to explore outside of your own knowledge, then you're never going to come to God. Mm. Amen. Amen. That's good. Good stuff. Well, thanks again, brother Joel. Really enjoyed Amen. it. Amen. But you Amen. know, Joel, I, I have to say, you know, there are a few things you didn't cover and I'd like to pose a few questions for you right here. Um, okay. and, and for the guys too. <laughs> now, what what do you call be it? Afraid. What, what do you yeah, call? Really, be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> maybe, and maybe the guys can help you with this. What do you call? Oh. What do you call it when chemicals in a primordial soup evolve into Darwinists? Soup to nuts. <laughs> I, and here's something else you didn't cover, Joel. What? How many? How many evolutionists does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. Given enough time, a new light bulb will will evolve. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few that you missed, uh, you know. I'll be sure to include that in the second edition. (laughs) (laughs) And one other thing, besides links, what else was Darwin missing? His marbles. All right, I, I guess that's enough. But I just didn't want you to think you covered it all. A few things there. Hey, thanks for that, Eric. Yeah. Well, Brother Joel, let me let me let me say something. I I really appreciate just the fact that you made something very complex, uh, and science makes very complex very easy to understand. I was actually most of the time when I hear guys talk. And, and try to explain, uh, you know, the difference between evolution and, and, uh, you know, biblical Christianity and so forth. I get lost in the weeds and I just, you know, like, okay, I, I don't understand what you're saying. I had no problem understanding you and I really appreciate that. That's a, that's a rare gift and, uh, that was a blessing. So I, I just, for myself, that was a, just want to say thank you. Amen. I appreciate that. Praise the Lord.
All right. Well, Lord willing, we'll be back with another episode. Uh, not sure what it's going to be yet, but tune in. And um, we'll be looking for you, Lord willing. We'll, we'll all meet again soon. Amen. Can the Bible really be more advanced than modern science? Are there scientific discoveries that were found in the Bible centuries before? Are there yet other discoveries that the Bible already has revealed but modern science has yet to discover? Can the King James Bible really be more accurate than modern science? Find out the answers to these questions and discover some startling truths in episode number 12, Does the Bible Out Science? Science. Only on FatsInTheBible.com.